your average podcast. It's not a political show. It's a podcast about church culture and the culture at large, viewed through the lens of Scripture. It's the Richards Revelations podcast with Scott Richards. Here's your host, Scott Richards. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Scott Richards. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we try to live our lives just a little bit better, as we look at things through the lens of Scripture and then apply it to our life. I want to encourage you to share these podcasts with others. And if you're liking these podcasts, go ahead and hit the like icon and subscribe. If you'd like to participate in the ongoing production of this podcast, there's information below on how you can donate, if you're so inclined. Once again, I am truly thankful that you take the time to listen to these podcasts. Welcome to this week's podcast. Before we get into today's subject, I want to let you know that you can follow us on our Facebook page, Richard's Revelations Podcast, and most other social media platforms, including YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and so forth, under my name, Scott Richards. If you want to make it easier, try Scott Allen Richards. Allen spelt A-L-A-N. This week's episode, Hebrew Roots Movement Part 4. A lot of people have chosen to be in the Hebrew Roots Movement have sincere hearts and truly do want to please God because they love him. And this is something I've said before, and I'll continue to repeat, because not all of them have become belligerent or rude or very dogmatic in their approach. And again, I think this goes to what I've spoken of before in a previous podcast about the levels or the floors that they happen to be on at any given moment, whether they're newly introduced to this idea or whether they've been in it for a while and gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. The deeper you go, the more dogmatic and rude and belligerent you get. But I do want to continue to reiterate the fact that there are many that are in this and believe this sincerely and all this sort of thing because they love God and they, they really want to serve him and follow him. But they've received false teaching that is very persuasive and deceptive, even seductive, because it's labeled as hidden, forgotten, lost, or previously mistranslated truth. They've been subjected to a progressive chipping away of sound doctrine, having had them replaced with the distorted doctrines. Two of the distorted doctrines that I'll be talking about today are man's righteousness or God's righteousness, and then spiritual adultery out of Romans chapter 7. First, we'll tackle man's righteousness or God's righteousness. Lawkeepers will often quote Romans chapter 2, verse 13 out of context to claim that righteousness can be through the law. They claim that keeping the law does not earn salvation, but that after salvation, one's own righteousness, lack of sinning in their view, is determined by how well one obeys the old covenant laws. Let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. What lawkeepers refuse to acknowledge is that righteousness cannot be credited to any account that is not completely faultless according to the law as it is given. That means total obedience all the time. You see that in places like Exodus chapter 23 verse 13, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1, as well as chapter 12, 
27 and 28, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 21 through 26, and Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Anything short of perfect obedience all the time is a fail, coming up short, missing the mark, etc. That's why Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 says this, But now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was the demonstration of his righteousness, because in God's merciful restraint, he let sins previously committed go unpunished. Verse 26, for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only righteousness you could ever hope for through the law is your own. And that would require your perfect obedience all the time, which is an impossibility. God offers his righteousness in Christ by grace through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 says, Brothers and sisters, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For being arrogant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law because the righteousness that is by the law is unattainable, for it requires perfect obedience all the time. And it is not God's perfect righteousness, but man's imperfect righteousness, if it could actually be attained, a righteousness existing only until the next sin. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, which can only be man's righteousness, But God's righteousness is the righteousness apart from the law because in Christ we have a super righteousness, God's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Any righteousness that could be obtained through the law, if it could be attained, it can't, is man's righteousness. God offers us his righteousness in Christ. These passages and many others throughout Paul's writings is why so many in the Hebrew Roots movement are trying to discredit and remove Paul from the equation, because it debunked so many of their flawed, misguided, unbiblical doctrines, which is also why they've come up with their own quote-unquote scriptures, much like the cults do and proceed to discredit by lying about the original text of Scripture because the original text of Scripture does not support their flawed doctrine. They have come up with their own Scriptures to support their claims and discredit God's Word. 
others in the Hebrew Roots movement will just try to pour in their own meaning out of context into the scriptures, like we see here in Romans chapter 7, which is our next topic for today, spiritual adultery. Hebrew Roots movement greatly misuse Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. They believe God divorces and then makes it so that he can remarry Israel and actually say that Israel died to law, but died only to the law of adultery so that she could be remarried to another. Those in Christ do not die a single law, but the whole law, as Romans 7.4 clearly states. Torah-observant believers know well the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, number seven of the Big Ten. They also know Jesus' expansion of that commandment in his Sermon on the Mount, in which he proclaimed lust to be adultery in the heart. There's been at least two kinds of adultery. Physical adultery, actual sexual involvement with someone other than one's spouse. And psychological adultery, lust in the heart for sexual involvement with someone other than their spouse. To these two forms of adultery, I believe Paul clearly adds a third, adds a third of adultery, which is spiritual adultery, explained in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The first three verses set up the basis of comparison with physical adultery. So we'll read that in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 of Romans. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband is alive, she gives herself to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, so that she is not an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. Paul is speaking to those who know the law. Probably a good number of Jewish converts to the gospel of Jesus are among the Christians at Rome. And even those under other forms of civil law clearly understand that, yes, a woman is married to a husband, and while that husband is still alive, she goes and joins herself to another man. She is clearly an adulteress. Having set that stage, Paul goes on to apply this truth to those who are followers of Christ. Romans 7 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who has raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What is the therefore, therefore? Obviously, this verse is an application of the previous three verses. It is evident that on a spiritual level, Paul is saying we cannot be joined to both Christ and the law at the same time. Otherwise, just like the woman in the first three verses, an individual who seeks to join himself or herself to both Jesus and the law at the same time commits spiritual adultery, a third kind of adultery. Here, verse 4, we're told that if we're part of the brethren in Christ, Paul's addressing, then we have been made to die to the law. 
period. End of argument. End of this nonsense about Christians needing to obey the law given to Moses, which I've mentioned in other podcasts and stuff. The must keep the Sabbath, must keep the dietary laws, must do the feast and festivals and all these sort of things. There's obviously a huge problem here. Some 1,400 years before the book of Romans was written, Moses recorded the commandments of God for the Israelite people, which appeared to be good for all time stretching into eternity. Now, however, the very Son of God has appeared, demanding that we be joined to him in ways which supersedes the law given to Moses. In his Sermon on the Mount, he differentiates himself from the law with the refrain, but I say to you, which we happen to hear that a lot, but I say to you, and even overturns some points of the law, such as commanding us to swear no oaths at all, when the law commands its adherents to take oaths to the Lord. You can see the contrast in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, and in Deuteronomy 6.13. So what is the solution to this perceived contradiction, the laws given to Moses and the teachings given to us by Jesus Christ and his apostles? Here it is. Just as in verses 1 through 3, in which someone has to die in order for the second union to be not adulterous, so someone has to die here in order for there to be no spiritual adultery. The adultery of seeking to join ourselves to both Jesus and the law of Moses at the same time. Now here's where I think God provides an amazing, startling, and totally unexpected solution. In verse 4, he actually has two people die, Jesus and the believer in Christ. But he also has these two people raised from the dead so that they may be joined to each other in a new union that truly bears fruit for God. See, we know that Jesus' death on the cross and burial and resurrection in a physical sense, and we're reminded in Scripture, even like in Romans chapter 6, where on a spiritual sense, when we come to Christ, there's a symbolism there that, that we have died to our sin. The old man is dead as we were buried in our death, and then we were raised again. That same symbolism that we see when we do baptism, that we go under the water to signify being buried to our old self, and then we come up out of the water resurrected anew. The implication, the old union with the law, was not getting the fruit-bearing job done. Only new life can do that. One thing we must realize about the law, though the law of Moses has many good purposes, though it is holy, set apart, and though it is good, there is something even more important about it. It is inadequate. It cannot produce life. It cannot bear fruit. This is why it is so important to hold to the truth of Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Not only was Jesus crucified and raised again, and believers in Christ were crucified with him and raised again, Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, but there was also something else that was crucified. 
And this thing that was crucified was not raised from the dead. For believers, the thing that was crucified was the law itself. Living by the letter of the law is actually and truly an act of the flesh. You are either walking in the power of your own flesh to keep commandments, many of which, by the way, were never intended for believers in Christ to keep in the same way the Old Testament Israelites were to keep them, or you are walking in the Spirit, being led by Him as sons of God into and through a lifestyle of fulfilling the royal law. James chapter 2, verse 8, the law of love, the new commandment Jesus gave us. There is no middle ground. So while there are many that want to hang on to, adhere to, live by the law in their own flesh, in their own works, like many cults, it's a works faith, it's a works religion. They have to do this in their self because these things that they do, these things they have to do to maintain a so-called righteousness, a purity with God, are acts of the flesh. Whereas when we have been redeemed and take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's righteousness, it's done through the blood of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing and recognizing that no one could ever complete and perfectly live up to and according to the law. And it was never meant to bring long-lasting forgiveness for our sin. Christ came, as I've said many times, to fulfill the law, that which we could not do in our flesh by our acts. The law points and sets a standard and says, look, this is what it is to be perfect and all these other kind of things. And there are some things there, like I said, that were given for Israelites a certain time period that wasn't given for those that were followers of Jesus Christ. Paul addresses many, many times where people that have gotten saved, Jewish believers, they come to Christ and all of a sudden they start going back to some of the old traditions, going back to things of the law like circumcision and so forth and and requiring that. And Paul has to set them straight and going, no, no, we're not under that anymore. We have been redeemed. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourself to bring redemption or to find ourselves in a right standing with God, a position of righteousness. Our position of righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Again, I'll say here, if you've come across this and you've somehow gotten involved in this, gotten drawn into the Hebrew Roots movement, Torah followers, Torah observance, uh, many different names. Typically, the main banner, that kind of overarching banner is Hebrew Roots Movement. But on an individual basis, some people will call themselves something else. But essentially, it's the same thing. You're adhering to law-keeping, all of the law, except for the sacrifices, which, as I've said, also stated in the past, many believe that that's going to come back again. And there are those that actually believe that all that's going to come back in the millennial reign. But be that as it may, you're trying to do this in the flesh. You sincerely love God and are thinking that this is what you've got to do. That's not what Scripture teaches. And the only way that they can convince you that you've got to do this is discredit God's Word, manipulate it, twist it around, pull it out of context. But if you just read God's Word in its context, you will see that it's in Christ and Christ alone that your salvation and your righteousness comes, and there is no need for you or I to try to keep the law, try to maintain a righteousness 
by acts that we perform by following certain laws of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. I encourage you to pray and seek God and have Him reveal to you the truth through His Word. Those of you that have not involved in that and you're full-on following Jesus and know that your salvation comes in Him, these I'm putting together and putting out of there are just warning signs because many in the Hebrew Roots movement will come to gatherings and churches and so forth, the traditional settings, and start making all these kinds of claims to draw people out into their belief system, pull them out of following Jesus Christ in the way that you are currently following him, to take you back to the old covenant law and have you believe that you need to keep the old covenant law, which Christ clearly did away with. So it's a warning. But you hear these certain kind of things that someone might be saying, be warned. Don't follow them. Don't go to their little small group fellowship. Oftentimes these start out with having inviting you to like a little home fellowship in a home somewhere. And they begin to manipulate and twist and discredit the Bible. Like I said, there are some in the, the movement that go so far to try to remove Paul and discredit him from the equation. And unfortunately, when you do that, it's not long after that that you almost get, you get to the point where, well, then Christ is out of the picture because so much of Paul's writing is about Christ that if you remove everything Paul said from the Word, you're removing Christ from the New Testament, a large part of that. And so they have to grapple with that. There's guys that, that went down that path and they had... they just like others started doing this whole reconstruction of their faith. They are trying to figure this all out because I've gone so far down this rabbit hole and the logical conclusion, because of all the you know, twisting that they do to discredit Paul, realize, gosh, without Paul, large part of the New Testament, you don't have much left of Christ. So they find themselves in a weird spot. And we pray for the people like that, that they would repent and they would get right and get back on track and realize that what they've bought into and what they've been teaching and pushing is misguided and unbiblical. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I really do appreciate it. If you know of anyone else that you know that might be encouraged or get something out of these podcasts, I encourage you to share them. Let other people know about it. Again, if you've not followed whatever platform you're on, an indication of following the podcast, I encourage you to do that. Again, thank you so much. Until next time, God bless you.